Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode with a great guest lined up for today. Today's guest is the Director of Change Management Lead for Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Please welcome to the show, Sean McCarthy. Hello, Sean. Hey, Justin. Great to be on the show. Thanks so much. Really looking forward to the discussion. We had a great prep call and looking forward to uh, sharing some of your insights with the audience. So I want to start this podcast the way we start every podcast and ask you, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless or frontline workforce today? Oh, the deskless workforce. Yeah, that one's that's a tough one because there's so many competing interests. And I think the biggest one is getting back to work-life balance. That was pretty easy when you had an office to go to and separating your work life from your home life. Now they're going to be ever more intertwined and that's going to be a struggle for everyone because let's face it, we all deal with distractions, you know, some of us better than others. But that being said, you know, it's, you want to be productive and you want to also serve your home life, but how do you keep those compartmentalized? And that's going to be a struggle, I think. And, you know, that's a, that's about trust. Yeah. In the organizations that you're working around today, do you feel like things are back to pre-COVID normal or are we still in a transition state? I would say there, there's no such thing as getting back to pre-COVID normal. You know, that, that turned everything on its head in a good way and a bad way. I mean, obviously the COVID was, was a tragedy in itself, but the innovations that have come from that in helping to accelerate technologies that were, have been available for, you know, over a decade now, but really permeating the entire workspace at this point has really accelerated the distributed workforce. And I'd say that's a blessing in a lot of ways, but boy, are we struggling to deal with it? You know, that that's true for any really transfer transformational sort of uh, leap. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there are probably some things that we can come back to when we get into it. Before we uh, go any further down the path, though, why don't we let our audience hear a little bit about you and, and your background and, and what you've been up to, what led, what's led you to where you're at today and, yeah. and what you're doing today. Yeah, that was, that's kind of a circuitous route. Um, originally, I went to college at the U.S. Naval Academy and did 20 years as a uh, naval officer flying uh, maritime patrol aircraft. Um, and then retired a few years ago and decided I need to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, got into management consulting, and that led to a change management role with uh, a large defense contractor. And then eventually moving on to uh, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, where I'm happy to say I found a home. How many retired pilots from the military end up as change management professionals? Like, is there some percentage? Is it, how close to zero is it? Yeah, I, I would say I'm the only one I know of, but that doesn't mean there aren't any other out there, any others out there. And if you are out there, amen, brother yeah. <laughs> or sister, yeah. glad to have you in the in the space. 
Is there anything that from your background that prepared you for or made you interested to pursue change management as a profession? Well, you know, it's funny. It was, I would say it's a serendipity that I fell into this role because it was all because of another veteran who said at a uh, job fair when I was coming out, said, Hey, you'd be good at that. And I said, cool. What is it? And why, <laughs> you know, cause I had no idea that this is a role, you know, we don't, we certainly don't have change implementation folks in the military because everybody's expected to implement change. And in fact, you, that's what you're brought up to uh, just think about all the time because the battle space is always changing. You're always flexing to it. You don't have time to say, hey, I, I need to come up with a plan again when you're moving on to the next objective. So you, you <laughs> I would say, was it Eisenhower, I think that said, you know, planning is essential, but plans are worthless. So, you know, we, we plan, so we kind of get ready for it, but then you flex. And I think just being used to flexing made it a natural transition. And I think it helps with helping other people manage change because let's face it, we all kind of freak out when things get, you know, get turned sideways. Um, but it's generally good to have somebody that's been there and done that and lived with it to kind of help, you know, walk you through it. So I, I admit to my naivete in, in military, I've never spent any time in the military and, you know, have a few friends and, and acquaintances that I've, I've talked to and listened to stories, but I've never really heard anybody talk about it the way that you just described it. And that's kind of fascinating. And, and you're making me want to divert for just a few minutes and, and explore really it, what I feel like I heard you say is that change management is an integral part of being in the military which makes perfect sense. And the way that you described it makes perfect sense. Preparedness for anything and a nimbleness. Um, you know, you talked about flexing, always changing. I love that. Why is it that it seems so obtuse to the way we kind of naturally run things in the civilian side of things? Well, because we really need that same flexibility too, but it seems like this change management role, as you described, like you didn't even know it was a role. We're yeah. trying to evolve to that. Why does it seem like it, we're like pushing a rope so much? Well, on a good day, hopefully nobody's shooting at you. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, so that is so generally a pretty zero. good imperative for changing your point of view. Um, but aside from that, I, I think this in the civilian sector, you're, there's less disruption and it doesn't happen quite as quickly. Now that's changing, but I think what you, you'll find is, and you see this to a large extent in the military, you know, we, they say we always fight the last war. Well, in the business, you're always fixing the last problem, you know, and I think we both fall, um, fall into that trap where you say, you know, this has worked for decades. I've built my business on this successful paradigm that why would I change that? Yeah. Well, sometimes the market, pay, the marketplace says you have to, you're losing your, you're eroding your competitive advantage. That's the same in the military. Sometimes it just happens faster because you're getting shot at. Okay. That's, that's fine. We accelerate that timeline there and it causes you to iterate faster. You know, there's no, no better case for change than your business is about to fall apart, right? Everybody starts reaching for changes in their business when they see they're losing the marketplace, they're losing customers. But if you're successful, why would you change? Yeah. Well, I, I have a suggestion for why, 
And and it actually is as I hear you talking about the you know comparing and contrasting between the military and, and civilian organizations. I was at a presentation probably about a month ago where some military leaders were actually presenting to technology startups, and so I was in the technology startup part of the audience listening to what the military leaders are saying. Hey, this is what we need from the startup community. And there was an, an army general and Navy admiral that had both presented at separate times. And I was fascinated by both of their discussions. And interestingly enough, you, you just reminded me about one of the points that was in common between them. They both talked about their excitement to hear about new technologies that they could leverage in their organizations and throughout the military. And they both talked about it like they they would describe their excitement, enthusiasm, and starting to think about how they might implement these technologies. And then the moment that they thought about that, they also said, uh-oh, our competitors have this stuff too. Our adversaries have this too, right? And it was really kind of fascinating. And I, I, I left that conversation. I've said this to a few folks, like, I don't know how these guys ever sleep. Knowing what they know, I don't know how they get a night's sleep because that perspective of saying, hey, we could harness this and the enthusiasm that they demonstrated but then how quickly that enthusiasm goes away when they say, holy crap, the other guys are going to have this too. Well, to, to bring that over, and I realize these are not the same thing, okay? They're, they're talking about hypersonic missiles being fired. No, at no, our, no. It's Actually, it's very similar. But there's very a competitive much. nature, right? When you yeah. are running a, a business and there are always competitors. And yep. if you think for a moment that there's not a competitor, then that's probably your most vulnerable moment. Because somebody's going to come up and eat your lunch. <laughs> somebody's always trying to eat your lunch. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. So, it, but it's interesting. I think you're also right in saying that we we tend to want to feel comfortable in the predictability, like to to get into Absolutely. the right. That's a that's a comfortable place for us humans. And um, maybe we should adopt more of what you described from the beginning. It's like force to change. Hey, we need to plan, but the plans are worthless. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's right. You know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, but also no plan survives first contact with the marketplace. You right. know, your customer is always going to tell you that that's pretty close to what I want, but that isn't exactly what I want. Yeah. And then inevitably you're going to get a great idea for how you can deliver it better. And sometimes that affects your frontline workforce where they say, Hey, you've given me the best technology money can buy. One, I don't know how to use it. And two, it gets in the way of me delivering the product you wanted me to deliver, whether that be a service or some other product. And now you have a disconnect. And that's where I, I take that, uh, your analogy with the military is you can have the best technology in the world. If you can't use it or you can't use it as a community, as a business, you know, and let's face it, that military, that, that team together is using that technology to not just use it as one person. It's the whole community is using it together to leverage, to make everyone better. So like I said, if you've got a frontline worker that's just using the best technology, but doesn't get how it's connected to everything else, they're lost. They're not adding any additional value. Yeah. One of our former uh, podcast guests posted something great on LinkedIn today. And she said that she, she was describing the difference with technology adoption between usage and adoption, right? Usage is just getting people to actually like log in, but then adoption is actually integrating it, integrating it into their workflows. I thought that was a good way to describe it. I think a lot of times major technology initiatives focus on just usage, kind of meeting the minimum requirement of usage. Did everybody log in? What kind of, you know? That's right. I, I'm using what I paid for. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's not really where the ROI comes from those investments is in truly integrating it in with those workflows and with those practices inside the business. And I think we, we struggle with that uh, quite a bit. I'm curious to see, does that, is that line up with what you're seeing? When oh, you absolutely. Programs? Well, I mean, think about it this way, you know, let's say I'm introducing a, a series of applications that my workforce needs to use, but they're not connected or they don't work together or they're not easily uh, aligned. Well, if I'm supposed to deliver some service and I've got to manage all these other applications, do you think I'm adding value to that worker's productivity? No, because I've taken somebody who's, you know, design, uh, who's trained to provide a specific service. And now I've latched on, you know, Hey, you need to be the IT guru for these, these five applications. And you need to be your own tech support because if you're in the field and you're disconnected, you're on your own buddy, you know? So that's where we start to go. Okay. Well, how can I use these technologies to be more productive, not just to gather more data? You know, and I think that's where we, the, the fallacy of the, the data cult is, is, Hey, if I only get more data, I can make better decisions. No, you may, you, you, you gotta use that data in a way that's not going to keep you from delivering the product that you were meant to deliver. That's what's making your money. You know, that's, what's keeping your business alive. Don't mess with that. <laughs> and, and what do you think? What do you think the solution is for that? Because I, I've had some observations, as I said to you earlier, when we were just kicking off, I, I've had some observations in the field with, with clients of ours in my day job that I, I think it's not a lack of data that I think is the problem. I, I think it's that we've collected so much data, we've created so many dashboards, my company included, but I think people maybe a little uh, have data fatigue. There's too much data, too many dashboards, and, you know, people are like, yeah, but I got to get my freaking job done. You know, that's right. How that's do we right. overcome that? Any advice on how we might want to look at that and, and maybe coach those users into to making good use of that and still getting their job done? Yeah, I, I think one of the things is backing up to when you're implementing. Uh, one of the things that I've done through a lot of tech implementations is user acceptance testing. And I think almost everybody's done a UAT at some point. And uh, it's in some cases, it's a great opportunity to just pat yourself on the back and say, hey, we, we got this launched. Okay, cool. Let's just move on. It's also a point to take some hard data and a lot of anecdotal data and say, is this going to make things better or worse? And if you don't think that that has an impact on your company's retention, think again. You know, That's the, that's the uh, unquantifiable little cloud that's going to hang over you. If you implement something, everybody goes, this was awful. Oh my goodness, I don't ever want to deal with this again. I'm actually going to go to another company where it's easier. You know, they don't do it as fast, but hey, I don't have to deal with this nonsense. You know, I, I've heard people say that. And in a UAT, you don't ever want to get to that point. You want to say, hey, I'm I'm getting better data that I needed to make decisions, but I'm also making my employees more productive. And in a UAT, nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you, this is going to slow me down. And then, you know, you may have to generate some sort of training and let's face it, there's always an implementation hump that you got to get over. You know, let's, when you, when we first started going from writing letters to sending emails, people didn't hardly knew how to turn on a computer. Now we don't even think about it. 
you know, we don't even think about, you know, smartphones haven't been along around that long, but now we're instant messaging everybody. And we expect that all the time, you know, but there was a learning curve. Once you get through that learning curve, are you seeing that extra value? If you're not, maybe it's time to roll back. And I don't think anybody feels like, oh, well, I've spent all this money on this thing. I need to roll this back because now I'm actually making things less productive. Sometimes you get a, <laughs> it just bite the bullet and say, this was a bad idea. I, I think that rarely happens, but it does happen enough that you need to take a look at it after the fact and say, I've gotten over that learning hump and I've had the frontline workers give me feedback that says, this just isn't working as we intended. It's slowing me down. Yeah. I, so I think you're spot on. And I think one of the things that I find frustrating that I still don't fully understand is why when those moments are discovered in many large organizations, the project teams are forced to push through anyway, as if the implementation dates on the Gantt chart are more important than all of the other things that you just talk about. And I, I really don't get that. I don't know if maybe somebody up the food chain is, has got a bonus tied to this implementation. Some cost fallacy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you yeah, ever read, uh, what was it? Thinking fast and thinking slow, the heuristics, the, you know, that the Nobel prize winners, uh, Kahneman got there. There's a lot of those that you kind of got to look at from a business leader perspective and say, what am I not thinking? What am I taking for granted? And that's, that's a common one. I've, I've put millions of dollars into the system. It's got to work because I put millions of dollars into it. Is that true? Yeah. I'm... There's no guarantee. So how do you think we combat that as, as change management professionals and those of us that are more in consultative roles with these project teams, you know, I, I get it. I, so, somebody's got their neck out over the guillotine saying, yep. Hey, they got, went to the CFO and got funding for this project. And, they, they don't want to have egg on their face, but I, I just, for, for some reason, I don't understand why that seems more difficult to go and, and tell others in the organization, listen, we're going to put this thing in the back burner for 90 days because we've got to go get this adoption problem solved. We have some user experience issues that are causing bad results and we think it's bad to, to move forward right now. Why that seems to be a worse option than actually cramming this thing down people's throat who don't like it, aren't prepared for it, aren't going to adopt it. And ultimately it will be less successful than it could otherwise be. But that timeline becomes a bigger priority. You know, it's like, let's do it fast and shitty. That's okay. But, you know, you know, 90 days late and really good never seems to be the option. That doesn't make sense to me. Or let's, let's flip it and say, let's just fail faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I do that all the time. There, let's, let's face it. We've all been part of some implementation that you went, man, if we had just called it a year ago, we all knew this was coming. This, we thought, <laughs> truthfully, I don't think this is going to work. And let, let's talk about why, you know, and let's, let's say maybe that's good feedback midstream that it will make it successful. But if you don't have some point where you, you know, milestones throughout that project. And I, I think you normally have implementation milestones where you reassess this, but you got to be brutally honest. And I think back to my Navy days, you know, every post-flight it was, you know, take your ego off. Let's talk about what you did well and what you didn't do well. And then we, we get back to work. Hey, that's a learning opportunity. You got to do that with every implementation too. 
What are yeah. we doing well? What are we not doing well? And is that failure criteria? Because if it is, we need to put a bullet in this thing and move on to the next project. Any ideas on how we can all do a better job? Go, going back to what we talked about before with usage mm -hmm. versus adoption, and, and those are not your words, but um, you seem to be nodding your head in agreement that there's a, yeah, a absolutely. in between those two states, whatever we call them. Any ideas on how we can all do a better job of measuring adoption and, and setting that up as an objective earlier? You know, you've talked about this since we first came on today about mm -hmm. setting the expectations early in the process. And I think that's missing. I think we often say, hey, we need to get 80 or 90 percent of the people logged in by such and such a date. But that's not really an adoption metric. Right. Any ideas on how we can measure that better? Well, did you go into the implementation with some KPI? you know, some productivity or performance bump, some value um, statement that, hey, I'm going to save some money. If you're not saving the money or you're not hitting that KPI, you might have an adoption issue. You know, I got, I got everybody these smartphones and they use them just to make phone calls. Well, okay. Then what do they have start smartphones for? You know, there's a host of apps and there's all sorts of other capability there that you could use for all sorts of other pr productivity uses. I just use that as an example, but you know, why would you buy a smartphone if you just had, had to make calls? Yeah. I, I talked to uh, an Apple guy a couple of weeks back that supports field service customers for Apple. And it was a really insightful conversation because you know, we all think of Apple, not everybody. I think a lot of us <laughs> think of Apple. I'm a big Apple fan, so... Uh, I think of Apple as an easy user experience yeah. and, you know, they, they think a lot about intuitive design and uh, just the overall user experience of their devices and platforms. Yet what's interesting is that th this gentleman offered up a different perspective that they are innovating at such a rapid pace. They're bringing so many new capabilities to the device. Yeah. Make a phone call. It's still pretty much the same thing. Send an yep. email, pretty much the same thing. But an example that he gave is that he was out in the field with a field service technician and the tech was frustrated because he was using gloves and he was expected to type like his trip notes for a field service call. Right. And he was getting frustrated. And of course he says, oh, this phone's a piece of crap. This app's a piece of crap. You know, everything's yep. a piece of crap and you know, you can't use this thing. And the guy from Apple's like, you know, we've done a lot of advancements on voice dictation. You can go into that field. You can and just- Nobody knows how to use it. <laughs> Day and nobody knows how to use that. And I was like, man, that is such a good freaking example. And I, I love this guy because he is close to field service technicians. So he's kind of dealing with this, you know, deskless frontline workforce and bringing it into technology that we often associate with kind of knowledge workers, you know, iOS and, and Macs and stuff like that. But he's saying, no, like, even though Apple's intuitive and it's easy to use, some people don't always connect the dots on their own. And we have an obligation. He's saying they at Apple, but I'm saying we collectively, all of us that are responsible for implementing technologies like this, to look for those little valleys where, you know, it's the, the gap between success and failure in that spot is actually not very far. 
So he described the story to me and this guy's got like this epiphany moment saying, holy crap, this is a completely different experience for me. Now I can get my job done. And of course, all the people downstream, like, oh my God, these guys are actually filling out the text fields in the work order the way they're supposed That's to. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what we wanted all along. And the gap between that was such a real simple thing, but it just took a little bit of thinking. In his case, he went out to go do a ride along with the tech to go see firsthand what the problems yeah. were. And, and the gap is actually so freaking narrow. And so to me, that's an example of, was he using the app? Yes. Was he adopting it, using it successfully? Not even close. So yeah, he was signing in. If our KPI was user logins, if we were looking at user logins, we'd have had 100% yeah. in that case, right? But that's not telling the full story. And so I'm sure there are a hundred more examples. Oh, and you've got lost productivity because this guy's got to take off his work gloves, you know, Endless. And let's face it, if you know it's a contamination issue, he's got to use extra product, and and he's got to take time to type this thing in. It's a pain. But you know, I, as another example, I live in an area where you don't you don't have good cell coverage. So I have servicemen come out, and they want to service something. And they go, "Oh, I don't have a connection. Can I uh, hook up to your Wi-Fi?" I'm like, wait a minute. How come all that stuff isn't saved on your hard drive somewhere? Why isn't it locally accessible? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, the tech guy didn't think about that. Oh, so you require a cellular connection to do your job? Wow. Okay. Somebody wasn't thinking, you know, how, how many times do you see that? And I, I would say that's probably true in a lot of places in the U.S. and globally. If yes. you're relying on a cellular connection, you don't have a local backup. Yeah. You are putting your frontline workers in a bad spot. Now, I guarantee Almost everybody listening to this podcast has seen some example of that. I've been on some ride-alongs with techs and every single time that I've yep. been out there, connectivity is an issue. Uh, you know, I was in one uh, ride-along with a field service tech calling on a, a hospital. You know, hospitals are notorious for having beds out of their coverage. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> but we're cloud-enabled. Yes. We're cloud-forward, man. This is the way yeah. of the future, as long as you got a connection. Yeah, but there were a lot of, of restrictions on, on their ability to use their technology uh, as a result of that. So you're spot on. So when, and let's get back to, to thinking about communication and, and maybe I, I really want to draw on more of these examples. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with this idea of the battle space is always flexing and just always changing and, and how maybe you're taking those ideas into your role as a change management professional to say, how can we build that culture within a program or within a team and, and in an organization to, to think more like the organization, the culture of the Navy in your case? Is there any, any ideas that you can share with us on that? Well, the, the best example I'd have from my time in the service is the value of the non-commissioned officer. Um, you know, the, most of what we get done is on the backs of very young men and women who are non-commissioned officers. You know, usually your sergeants, your petty officers, you've got the same thing in every company. They're called line managers. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got the line workforce that works for them and they're doing these, let's say, you know, staff updates, you know, line updates once a week or every day for 15 minutes before the shift. And they have accountability for everybody that's working for them. We, you know, as an officer, I had to make sure they were successful. I wanted to make sure they were successful because the back of uh, everything we were doing was on their backs. That's the same for your line managers. They're accountable, but have you done everything you can to make sure that they're not only being able to enable their folks, 
but also accelerate processes, make their jobs easier. How many line managers do you have that just are burning themselves out doing administrivia for their, their workers and trying to get the job done? How do I make that better so that they can serve the people that work for them better? That's, that's usually what I'm looking for when I'm talking about change management is enabling those folks. I, so I love the way you're thinking about that. And this has come up a lot on the podcast lately. Uh, in fact, this is probably one of the most, uh, uh, I don't know, often talked about topics lately about the importance of that frontline leadership and how I think overlooked they are as an integral component for success in the organization. And so I'm curious, any, any ideas that come to your mind about how we can be better at serving them so that they can serve the people that work for them and ensure that success? I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any project examples or just ideas that come to your mind. You don't have to give me any property. No, yeah, no, no. I, I've got a lot of experience with this and I, I love it when leadership does skip levels and things like that in focus groups. I, I, I talk about this all the time and the data people hate me on this one, but it's the power of the anecdote. Anecdotal data is data. Okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's critical data because one, you know, one frontline leader that tells you, Hey, this, this just isn't working. You know, if we only did this, I could really deliver for the company. And then you hear it again. And maybe you hear it once more. Well, it's only three data points, but maybe those three data points over those three leaders are overseeing 50, 60 folks that are being impacted that impacted by that in the delivery of your services. And that's less productive for some reason. Well, you've only got three data points, but you got enough to know that's affecting 60 other data points. So now I've got something that may be something I want to spend some time on fixing. And I think going back to those leaders and going, Hey, I don't need to know how you're doing your job. I need to know how I can help you do your job better. If you, if you were king for a day, and this is the question I love most, king for a day and you could change anything about the company, what would you change? And nine times out of 10, they're not thinking about the company. They're thinking about themselves. And like we all do, how can I do my job easier so I can, so I can get it done? I'm proud of my work, <clears throat> but I'm hamstrung from whatever you know, process that's slowing me down. Asking those top two or three things helps you to start figuring out where you need to either adjust a process, adopt the technology to make a process easier, or pull some old, some new process out that says, Hey, it actually worked better when we did it the old way. That's, that's a really hard one to do though. Yeah. So that's an example though, where maybe you saw, you know, when you said earlier, you see some signs along the project that this thing's going to fail. If that's what your people are saying in the early phases of something, that's an indication that you, know, you can keep jamming this thing down their yeah. throat. Square peg, round hole. Sorry, yeah. this one ain't gonna fit. <laughs> yeah. So, any thoughts on how to make that case up to the project sponsors? Um, I, I think that's actually something that many of the people that I talk to, both on and off the podcast, maybe aren't quite sure how to package up that type of information, right? So, you and the story yep. that shared the hypothetical example you were out talking to jimmy and jimmy shares a story and says hey th this thing's just not going to fly out here how do you package that up in a way that's meaningful that convinces those project champions and and the, the key stakeholders that maybe funded this thing 
say like, guys, we've got to put the brakes on this thing. And here's why yeah. talk to Jimmy. Cause I, even as I'm, I'm asking you this question, I'm like, yeah, that sounds not very compelling. <laughs> oh no, it's absolutely compelling. I'll tell you why. Because when you entered into this project, you came at, came out with some sort of business value KPI. Let's say I'm going to save a million bucks by implementing this process. At least that's my idea. I think it might save us a million bucks. Project sponsors like, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back because we're going to implement this and I'm going to spend a bunch of money, but I'm going to save us a million bucks every year. You go down to the frontline worker and find out, well, <clears throat> there's actually a cost to this implementing this and it's lost productivity, let's say. And I go, hey, well, how much time are you spending on this when you could be servicing you know, another customer? Oh, well, you know, it's an hour here or two hours there or something like that. You start taking that data across all of your employees. What's the cost in service delivery? Yeah. Is it $2 million? So I'm saving a million dollars in order to spend an extra two. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That's a quick way to draw a line between what my initial implementation KPIs were and what the perceived impact is at implementation. You, this is something that I can't, I can't tell you happens often enough is you're not measuring the impact. You have to measure impact because you're never going to be able to draw this back to your original KPIs. And if you're measuring it properly, you can say, Hey, I'm not, get, I'm not even online to get to that KPI. You know, if you want to adjust and say, Oh, we're not going to save a million dollars. Maybe we'll save half a million dollars. It, okay. That's fine. As long as we all agree, that's what we want to do. But if it's, Oh no, no, we're going to wind up spending 2 million instead. You know, no, no, no. We're not anywhere close to what we thought we were going to get. That comes from measuring the impact over the implementation. What ideas can you share with us about how to measure better? Because I agree. Everything that you just said makes perfect sense. And we've talked about that this a little bit on the podcast. I think something that our audience and I mm -hmm. are still struggling with is how to do a better job of measuring it. It's it seems like every time I ask this question, we we come around to some kind of like fuzzy math kind of answer, you know, <laughs> where uh, it, it's hard to measure the data. And I'm just curious if you have any ideas on on how we can be better at that. Well, I. I I usually bring it back to cycle time. You know, whether it's making widgets or delivering services, you all have cycle times. Everybody has them and we all measure to them. Well, what was my cycle time before this change? What is it after? You know, am I making more widgets or, am I, or fewer? You know, am I able to service more customers or fewer because of this change? Because if it's not doing that, you're not, you're not delivering value to the business. Right. We don't, we don't implement change because we just want to change things. We do it because the marketplace demands it and the marketplace demands it because you're going to lose money. If you don't, you know, you're not going to be able to stay in business if you don't. Well, that's not true for every business, you know? So if you're implementing something, you need to be extra sensitive to measuring its impact on what you are trying to deliver. And that's yep. usually tied to cycle time. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I, I think a lot of times people want to default back to looking at the cost as some line item. And it, the problem with that is the impact may result 
in the same number of technicians, same number of delivery drivers, same number of retail associates, whatever the case may be. And so the line mm -hmm. item of cost actually doesn't change. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of times the argument kind of falls apart because it's like, well, our cost is going to be the same. We have 250 techs now. We're going to have 250 techs after we yep. have 250 techs before. So the cost actually doesn't change. But what you're describing, and I think this is a really good way to think about it, is really more on the output side. What are we getting for that cost? And that's where the cost really is, the impact mm -hmm. to this. If we were successful, those 250 techs should be able to go from 2,500 calls a day to 2,600 calls a day. Right. And instead, after this implementation, we're at 2,350 calls a day. Or know? I'm still net zero and my retention's gone way up because my employees are happier. Right. That right. Sometimes that's the right answer too. Especially you know? right now when everybody's short headcount. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every team that we talk to is, is dealing with turnover issues and, and uh, you know, they're down, they've got open job racks that they can't fill and stuff like that. Absolutely. That's all over the place right now. Yeah. But that, and that's where I say, you know, it's not always, Hey, I'm going to make money or save money. Sometimes it is just net zero, but there's other measurements, you know, yeah. all your HR professionals out there are going to say retention's a big deal because it does cost you money. You don't right. necessarily see it right away, but it does cost you. Yeah. And, and this is, I, I get frustrated and I, I don't always feel like I do a good job of articulating my frustration and not that anybody should ever care about why I'm frustrated, but <laughs> I, I just feel like in many of the large organizations that I am fortunate enough to interact with, they, they really struggle to put some real numbers around these things. Mm -hmm. Everybody complains about retention. They complain about the open recs. But then when you really start wanting to talk about the solutions to those problems, then it's like, oh, we don't have budget for this. We don't have budget for that. And, you know, and I, and I actually think change management is one of those great examples. And I don't cha sell change management services and I'm not a change management professional, but I think a lot of organizations, they look at change management as, as if it's some like kind of warm and fuzzy, you know, like, oh, that's only something that we can do when times are good and times aren't good right <laughs> You know, that's right. That's if times are good. You don't need a change manager. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the exact wrong way to look at that. Right. That's right. And so it just, but it just seems like because of, um, I don't know, it, it seems like there's a lack of attention to tracking those metrics. What does retention really cost the business? What do these open headcounts yeah. really cost the business? What's the cost of crappy customer experience right now? Because, your techs are running 12 hours a day or your delivery drivers are working overtime and, yeah. and, you know, things are slipping through the cracks, right? There is a cost to that. Yeah. And um, I, I admit it's very easy to talk about it here in a podcast and it's a lot harder to actually measure. In the That's world. right. In the I, real world, it gets a little bit more difficult. I respect and totally understand <laughs> that. But I, I also think that it just feels to me like organizations aren't working hard enough to measure that. I don't know. Maybe somebody's going to send me <laughs> Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's they're not working hard enough because I'd say we all work hard. We all work hard at what we do. The You're issue right. is are we working to say that? Are we working hard on the right things? Yeah. And and this goes back to prioritization. You know, I I often say every organization struggles with two big things: prioritizing and holding people accountable. Well, leadership should be prioritizing things and then holding others accountable. But Often the priorities change and then we don't communicate that to anybody. So how am I supposed to hold them accountable? You know, or I have a priority that I've just taken off or I'm not measuring to, well, I can't hold you accountable there too. So there's a lot of other elements underneath those, but you've got to set your priorities 
If the priority is retention, okay, cool. Let's make that absolutely clear and let's focus most of our efforts there. But I, you know, how many organizations go, I have 12 priorities and I'm going to, I'm going to put my budget to all of this. Oh, come on. Nonsense. You don't have 12 priorities. You probably have two or three because you're a human being just like the rest of us. You can't get your brain around 12 things all day long. I, I used to work for somebody that said, we need to be laser focused on these six things. And I always used to think to myself, I've never seen a laser because it's a yeah, really it focuses on one thing at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so just to switch the analogy or limit it to one. But you... Well, it, but but then you go back to, okay, how do you work? How do you fly a plane? You maintain a scan. If I only look out the windscreen, I only see what's out in front of me. I don't check my you know, airspeed or my oil pressure, where my engines are set. That, you know, all those things, you've got to maintain a scan. That's how you maintain multiple priorities. It doesn't mean you're laser focused on anything because laser focus gets you killed. You look at all, you maintain your scan and that's how you manage priorities and you hold yourself or those around you accountable for the things that are in your scan. But if it's not in your scan, you sure aren't measuring it, which means you're not holding anybody accountable, which means it ain't getting done. I love it. I can't believe it took 30 something minutes for you to bring in something from flying into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I loved it, you know, cause uh, I, I'd say I, I laugh with my wife. I've got the attention span of a gnat, but I like to make sure I maintain a scan about all the different things that I've got to prioritize. Yeah. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, is there, we got to wrap it up. We're, we're already uh, running out of time here. Is there any, um, Last advice, what, what would you tell the folks that are out there listening to us right now? What's what's one uh, piece of wisdom that you'd share with them about uh, the most effective way to, to help an organization see the need for agility and make change part of their normal culture? I'd say simplify. If you're not simplifying, what's the alternative? You make things harder. How can I make things simpler for myself, simpler for my employees, simpler, more, more simple for my customers. Yeah. Because if you're going that way, you probably trek it in the right direction. I love that. I, I think that is a, a fantastic, fantastic way for us to close out. And um, man, Sean, I really appreciate the time today. This has been a, a really good discussion. I knew it would be. And I actually didn't even get to some of the topics that I was hoping to get with you. So we might have to have another <laughs> at some point. Sounds but, great. Uh, but uh, for our audience, we're going to wrap it up there. I hope the audience, you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And uh, we really appreciate our listeners for your continued engagement with the podcast. Unless this is your first episode listening to Frontline Innovators, you probably already know that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end -end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. And that's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. We spell that at the end of the podcast because it's spelled uniquely with a Y, S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. So it's not Skyful, it's Skillful because uh, we're helping develop the digital skills of the frontline workforce. So thank you, everybody. Look forward to uh, you coming on the next call. And Sean, thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Justin. 